It is a great privilege for me to stand before you today to preach God's word in the absence of our pastor. It's a task that I do not take lightly and a position in which I come to in great fear and trepidation, not in terms of delivering it to you perhaps, but in terms of the awesome responsibility of proclaiming God's word to his people. Before we look at the text at hand, I would like to paint a little picture for you, tell you a little story to set things up. So if you would turn your imaginations on for a moment and try to create and paint this scene in your own minds. Imagine, if you will, that you are a Jew living in Palestine a few years after the time of Christ, but before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus' followers, as we have seen in our study in the book of Acts, have multiplied greatly. There are thousands upon thousands and new converts every day for several years as before they experience persecution. It's late September or perhaps early October. Maybe there's a slight nip in the air or a balmy fall breeze. You're in the holy days of Judaism leading up to the holiest of all Jewish celebrations, Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, a strict day of rest, fasting, and repentance. This year, you decide to take your family to Jerusalem to observe the ritual firsthand. As a sincere and devout Jew, you anticipate this day with a deep and powerful longing in your heart. All year, each and every time you broke the law, you dreamed of this day. For an entire year, the guilt of your personal sin and the collective sin of your family and nation seemed to build to a point of overwhelming magnitude. But finally, the Day of Atonement was arriving. Making your pilgrimage, you see in the distance the temple rising above Jerusalem in its glorious splendor. As you approach singing the songs of your faith, along with thousands of other pilgrims that are making the journey as well, you can feel the energy in the air, the excitement around this day. After you settle in and make some preparations for your family, the day arrives. You know full well the ritual. Your people have been doing this a long time. Not 10 years, not 50 years, not 100 years or 200 years, but for 1,200 years, Generation after generation, passing the crucial details and special significance of this day down to your own children year after year. You've been anticipating this day with eagerness at the thought that God will forgive your sins through the blood sacrifice offered by the high priest. A fresh year with a clean slate. Oh, what joy awaits you on the other side of this day. And so it begins. The high priest washes himself and dresses in special holy clothing set aside just for this day. He first sacrifices a bull for his own sin and that of his family. And with blood from that sacrifice, he takes a censer in the other hand and he fills it with hot coals from the altar and then a handful of incense on top of that to create the smoke. The incense leads the way into the holy of holies So the smoke will shield him from the glory of God that would otherwise certainly kill him. He approaches the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkles the blood from the bull sacrifice on the mercy seat to atone 
for his sin. Going into the outer course of the temple, the high priest then cast lots over two goats that have been chosen to atone for the sins of the people. The selected goat is sacrificed, and again, he enters the holiest place to sprinkle its blood upon the mercy seat. He comes out of the holiest place and walks all the way to the entrance of the temple, sprinkling blood as he goes in each of the outer courts along the way. Then he lays his hands upon the head of the second goat, the scapegoat, and he prays over the sins of the people. That goat is then led away into the wilderness, burying the sins of the people outside the camp, never to return again. With his work in the holiest place done, he changes into his regular priestly garb and makes burnt offerings on behalf of the people until the day and his work is completed. When the work of the high priest is finished, you weep over your sin and rejoice that the shed blood placed upon the mercy seat has atoned for it. And the scapegoat has carried it away forever. The day of atonement is complete until next year. As you and your family gather your things and begin the journey home, you meet a fellow Jew who is a follower of Jesus. He approaches you and begins to talk to you about Jesus fulfilling the sacrificial system. He tells you about a letter from the apostles to the Hebrew people that explain these truths and clearly presents Jesus as the Messiah. As he shares the content of this letter with you, your eyes are opened by the Spirit of God. And some light bulbs begin going off. This isn't the single light bulb above the cartoon character's head that pops open. This is your neighborhood Christmas light extravaganza below the transformer kind of light bulbs going off. The dots are connected, and you can't believe what you're hearing. Imagine that after 1,200 years of this huge, thick, giant curtain separating the people from the presence of God, a presence so holy and glorious that certain death would come to anyone who dared enter except the high priest and then only once a year. But now he says that you can go in dressed in the holiness of Christ anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Better still, the actual presence of God is with you always through his Holy Spirit. You can come and plead your own case to the mercy seat which actually no longer rests on top of the Ark of the Covenant, but is Christ himself at the right hand of the Father. And not only that, but this has been done once for all, that after 1,200 years under the sacrificial system, there is no more need of a blood sacrifice, that you need not carry your guilt from year to year, because every sin, past, present, and future, was laid upon Christ our scapegoat, and carried away forever. After expounding these glorious truths of the good news of Jesus Christ to you, your traveling companion finishes with this call for a response from the Hebrews letter. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O great God, we tremble at the realization of the text before us and understanding what you have done for us. And so as we come to this text, I pray that your spirit would open our hearts and would take the blinders off of our eyes and enable us to see Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who has fulfilled the law and the old covenant and who is our great mediator. This we pray through him. Amen. When Dale and I were discussing what I would preach on today, of course I didn't want to begin some kind of series or uh, try to attempt to preach his series, but we thought it would be a good thing to refresh ourselves and remind ourselves of our theme verse as a church for 2012 that was announced back in January. And so that is the text that we have before us today. Can we even begin to comprehend the filter by which a first century Jew heard the message to the Hebrews? And yet, its profoundness is not lost on us. For as we study the Bible from beginning to end, we see the faithful continuity, self-revelation, and fulfilled promises. They overwhelm us and they point us to the greatness, wonder, and love of our eternal triune God. Have we lost the sense of wonder at this realization? Has it become old hat to us? Do we understand at all the incredible right that is ours in Christ Jesus to come boldly into the throne room of our holy God? As we delve into our theme verse for 2012, may the Lord be pleased to rekindle our wonder and awe at such truth. Prior to the text at hand, the author, through the inspiration of God's Spirit, has laid out in the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews, the supremacy of Christ and his sacrifice over all others. To this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are then challenged to respond. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us. There's the call for response. First, the writer summarizes what has come before in the previous chapters. Our status in Christ. The first aspect that you see in your outlines for our status in Christ. Since we have access. Our status, brothers and sisters, allows us at any time to enter that place where only the high priest could enter once a year to present the blood sacrifice. We must try to understand the magnitude of this gift from our Heavenly Father. 
a Jew would have been shocked to hear this. For to draw near to God's presence, whether at Mount Sinai or in the Holy of Holies, would have meant death, not life. But through the blood of Christ, his final atoning, once for all, the veil, even his flesh, was torn in two, split from top to bottom, right down the middle, forever obliterating the wall between God and redeemed man. The writer calls it, and rightly so, a new and living way. Secondly, in terms of our status, we are reminded that in Christ we have a great priest, the text tells us. Since we have a great priest, is point number two. Jesus didn't just save us and say, okay, you're on your own. Good luck. No, he brought us to God and is actively helping us through intercession and the gift of his spirit. He is working incessantly on your behalf. Yom Kippur was called a Sabbath of Sabbaths, a special Sabbath. Any kind of work by the Jews was strictly forbidden, except for the work of the high priest. The people were at rest, but the high priest was working on their behalf in the presence of a holy God. Do you see the beautiful picture that's here for us? Jesus is our great high priest. He is working on our behalf in the presence of his Holy Father. And it is for us to but rest in his completed work. Johann Sebastian Bach, the great German composer, understood the importance of Jesus' intercession in his own daily life. You have heard that it was Bach's habit to write the letters S-D-G at the conclusion of many of his musical compositions It stood for the Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, for God's glory alone. But he also frequently began his compositions by inscribing at the top of the page, J, J. Before he wrote his first note of music, Bach's prayer was, Jesu Yuva, Jesus, help. We need Jesus. And we have him. He is our great advocate. Rest in him. Following the reminder of who we are in Christ, we are then given three responses for God's people. The first of these is found in verse 22. Let's take a look there. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our response, the first aspect of our response, since we have access and since we have a great priest, we can draw near in faith. If you're taking notes, draw a little box around that word faith. We can draw near in faith. When you come to worship God, draw near to him. Come sincerely in faith and bring a sacrifice with you. We see here the twofold idea of body and soul. God redeems the whole man, 
our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, so that we can in turn gather these things and offer them to him as a living sacrifice. The heretical sect of Christianity known as the Gnostics believed that the spirit could be redeemed, but the body could not be, and was evil. This is not what the Bible teaches. After laying out the gospel in the first 11 chapters in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul, in much the same way the writer here has done, calls us to respond in worship by presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. Did you bring your sacrifice with you today? You may say, well, I thought sacrifices ended with the old covenant. Well, the blood sacrifices and burnt offerings of death did end with Christ once for all, who proclaimed from the cross, it is finished. But we are called to be living sacrifices. So I'll ask you again, did you bring your sacrifice with you today? Well, yes, I put my tithe in the offering plate, or I'm giving my sacrifice of praise as I sing and pray. Or perhaps I taught Sunday school this morning. Or I'm giving God my hour and 15 minutes for the week. What if during the offering time, instead of passing offering plates around the room, that a very large bus with the destination plate reading on the front, all for Jesus, drove right through the front doors and down the center aisle. Perhaps you do give your tithes and offerings each week. Maybe you serve in the church in some capacity. But would you get on the bus? Draw near. Jump on. Go all in. In faith with body and soul. Not out of a sense of guilt. Not by mustering up something inside of you. Because he has opened a new and living way and has given you an all-access pass into his presence. Under the old covenant, God's people offered dead sacrifices. Under the new and living way, we are to be living sacrifices. The believer's second response is found in verse 23. Let's take a look there. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Since we have access and since we have a great priest, we can hold fast to hope. Put a little box around hope. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus told a parable about a sower who casts his seed in a variety of locations. You remember the story. After the crowd went away, he gave this explanation to his followers. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And their fruit does not mature. 
As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. In C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, we are introduced to a character of great faith, Truffle Hunter the Badger. While only a year has gone by in their world since the human children were last in Narnia, 1,300 years have gone by in Narnia time, and there has not been a single sighting of Aslan, the lion, in all of that time. When a dwarf begins to question the existence of Aslan, Truffle Hunter responds, Don't you go talking about things you don't understand, Nickabrick. You dwarves are as forgetful and changeable as the humans themselves. I'm a beast, I am, and a badger, what's more. We don't change. We hold on. Truffle Hunter wasn't touting his personal superiority, but rather his nature as a badger. It was in his very fabric to hold on. True believers hold on. It's part of our nature. We may struggle. We may be discouraged. We may become disheartened. We may fall into sin for a time. But ultimately, we will hold on. Why? Because we are strong and brave and true? No. Look at the text. Because he who promised is faithful. Because our God will complete the work he has begun in us. Our confidence is in the one who promised. Imagine if it were up to us. I would fail miserably. Praise God it's not. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you've done. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it, Paul tells us in Thessalonians. We see our third response in verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Since we have access, and since we have a great priest, we can stir up to love and good works. Put a little box around that word love. I have often heard from many of you, as well as other Christians, something along these lines. I don't know how people outside the church make it during the difficult times of life. What you are expressing in those words is the truth that we need each other. God in his eternal wisdom designed it so. It is not a weakness to be part of something larger than yourself. It is not preferable to be a stalwart, independent Christian who only needs himself and God. I remember an old saying a number of years ago that went like this, God and I make a majority. There may be some good sentiment in that, but I'm not sure it points us in the right direction. Being a lone wolf Christian is not the way God designed it. The Bible describes the church as a body, one being with many members, arms, legs, eyes, ears, fingers, toes, nose, etc., etc. Too often the church is crippled 
by the absence or lack of involvement of its members. I ask you, if we are all members of one body, and one of us chooses not to do our part, not to function as we were designed, what does that do to the effectiveness of the body? Those of you who have experienced broken legs or arms or some other physical ailment, perhaps even just a badly stubbed toe, you understand what it's like to operate on less than all cylinders. It's not pleasant, and it certainly limits your effectiveness. How vibrant, how alive, how active, how useful can we be to our Savior if part of us is missing in action? As the worship leader at St. Andrews, I'm sensitive to this reality as I look out over the congregation from week to week on any given Sunday. When you aren't here, there is a hole that no other voice can fill. There is a part of our corporate worship missing as it ascends to the courts of heaven. If you're a professing member here, then you are an important part of this body of believers. There are no degrees of importance in the body of Christ. Your eyes don't trash talk to the rest of your body, do they? Hey, ears! You aren't as important as me. I'm the main man around here. I can see everything. Ask a deaf person if ears are important. The body needs all its members to function properly. And we, the body of Christ at St. Andrew's, need all of our members to function as the Lord has designed us. You can't be the church on your own. And we can't be the church without you. It doesn't work that way. Notice that we are not to consider how we might be stirred up. We are not to passively wait to be fed or look for the church that has all the bells and whistles and the most to offer us. I used to think that we lived in a peculiar time when Christians seek to be served rather than to serve, and that this was due to our consumerism culture, that this society of what can you do for me is a product of modernity. But is it really? Isn't it simply self-centeredness, pride, and being egocentric? It's really not new at all, is it? It's as old as the garden. Believer, the high calling upon your life is not to be stirred up, but to stir up one another to love and good works. Look around you for a moment. Go ahead. Take a look. Look up there, up there, over there. Who do you see? What are you doing as your part of the body of Christ here to stir up one another to love and good works? Notice that I didn't say stir up trouble among one another. No, just the opposite. Love and good works. The essence of the gospel. We are to proclaim the love of God in Christ Jesus to one another and to our community. And we are to enact that love with good works. Remember how our beloved Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. That you have love one for another. 
You can't love people you don't hang out with. You may object, I don't particularly like those folks down at the church. Well, we're a family, and you don't get to pick who's in the family tree. Some might say, well, I've decided to spend all my time with unbelievers so that I can be a witness. Or my time with my family at home is much more important to me than coming out to the church. I commend your motives, and I do. But your objection is really not with me. The bottom line is fairly simple, really. God has designed the church to be his body here on earth, the vehicle through which he moves in the hearts and lives of mankind. Did you hear that? Let me read that again. God has designed the church to be his body here on earth, the vehicle through which he moves in the hearts and lives of mankind. If the church doesn't have all its parts, it can't function as it was designed. We can say we want to reach Irmo for Christ. We can say that we want to do mighty things in our midst. We can say we want to grow in number and fill these facilities beyond capacity. But these will only be empty words if we're not being the church that God has called us to be. Remember, Christian, you don't come to church. You are the church. This place is where we come to be the church. All right, now what? Where do we go from here? Do you remember our opening character? Our Jew on pilgrimage? How do you think he must have responded to the glory of the gospel that was completed in Jesus Christ? Do you think the call to response as presented in the letter of the Hebrews was difficult for him? Apparently it was for some because we have the need for the letter. But no wonder the early church that we have seen in the book of Acts wanted to be together all the time. No wonder they were willing to sell everything they had and have all things in common. They were absolutely blown away by the new and living way. How could they respond and how can we respond any differently? Maybe you find it difficult to have the faith to rest in the gospel. Maybe your hope in Christ's ability to complete you is waning. Maybe you find it too difficult to love this body of believers. Then go back to the beginning. Remember what Christ has done. Who you are in him. And ask for his help. Yesu Yuva. Jesus, help me draw near in faith. Jesus, help me hold fast to hope. Jesus, help me stir up to love and good works. Do you see the connection of the three words I asked you to box? The three great attributes and disciplines of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. The author of Hebrews goes on to expound upon these three great truths throughout the rest of the book. Christ gives us faith that we might rest in his finished work. We have hope in our confession because he has promised to complete that work in us. And we are to love one another, which will testify to all the watching world that we are his. When we remember what Christ has done, when we remember that we have access to him, 
and that we have a great priest to help us. Our natural response will be to draw near in faith, hold fast to hope, and stir up each other to love. Faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these brothers and sisters is? Let's pray. Oh God, this is a high and holy calling that you have given to us. And yet you have made it possible for us to do this in Christ Jesus. You have given us the resources and the tools in him. We need nothing else. Help us to fulfill this calling upon our lives to be the church. To draw near to you in worship. To hold fast to our confession and not to turn away. And to stir up one another even as we proclaim the gospel to love and good works. Give us your enablement to do this for we need you. And without you, we are nothing. And we pray this and ask this in the name of our great Redeemer, the one who is praying for us even now at the right hand of the Father, our Jesus Christ. Amen.